Aren't you glad you came to church today? Aren't you glad that we get to celebrate the resurrection today? As we open our time in the Word, I want to start with a question, and I want to ask you to consider and think about and reflect upon the best news you've ever heard. Like what's the, what comes to mind when I ask that question? Maybe it was the news that you were expecting or the news that a grandchild had been born. Or maybe it was the news that the job you had been hoping and praying you would get was yours. Maybe it was that the offer was accepted and the home you've been longing for will be yours in just 30 to 60 days. Maybe it was a different kind of acceptance. Maybe you're in a stage of life where you've been applying to schools and, and you got the news that your first choice had accepted you. Whatever it was, I want to encourage you to consider perhaps the best news ever, which is three simple words. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. And yet, yes, clap for yourselves. This is worth clapping and praising God for. But as we say those words, He is risen, and as the echo returns, He is risen indeed, it's interesting to consider that the response by the first people who heard that was not what we might have expected. And so today, as we consider the relationship between seeing and believing, between hearing the news and believing the news, between seeing the risen Savior and believing in Him, I want to encourage you to try to put yourself in the story this morning. And to do so without the knowledge of how the story ends. Try to immerse yourself in the story as we find it on Easter morning and pretend that you don't have Matthew 28 and Mark 16 and Luke 24 and John 20. Imagine you don't know about the resurrection. And so, with the words on the screen as we open the service from Mark's Gospel, We're going to be focusing on Mark's portrayal of the resurrection and doing so partly because in our banding together journals, which we've been moving through the year, reading a chapter or two a day from Scripture, if you're here today for the first time and you'd like to get one of those, we have them available in the lobby. But it's just a simple reading plan. We're in the Gospel of Mark right now, and so we've been following that reading plan. And we're going to be starting a series today titled Desiring God. We're focusing on the resurrection this morning, and then we'll be looking at at different elements of desiring God in the weeks ahead. And we're kind of taking the Hollywood approach. Perhaps you've noticed the way that they've been doing this recently, where they start with the main event. The resurrection is about as main an event as you can imagine, and then there'll be some prequels over the next couple of weeks, and then we'll have some sequels over the weeks that follow. And we'll look at this idea of desiring God from a number of different angles. But today we're in Mark, and we're in chapter 16, and I want to encourage you to imagine you don't know the whole story. As the women were approaching the tomb, we read in Scripture that 
while they had had great intentionality and collected the spices and they were up at daybreak to be there as soon as possible to anoint the body of Jesus, it's as they approach the tomb that it occurs to them, who's going to roll the stone away for us? A very good practical question, but it hadn't occurred to them until now. And yet they come upon the stone has already been rolled away. And picking up in verse 5, we read that as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. But he has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now to say that the best news ever is those three words, He is risen is no understatement. And we are here today 2,000 years later, thousands of miles away from where this took place because it wasn't just that the tomb was empty that morning. The tomb is still empty. He is still risen. He is still living, conquering sin and death on our behalf. And so Easter, the resurrection, means that death is not final. Some have said that Easter marks the death of death. That the power of death was broken. That the power of God is greater than the power of death. That the empty tomb has the final word. Not our ceasing to breathe in and breathe out. It's the empty tomb that declares that there is a resurrection available to each and every one of us. You see, the resurrection changes everything. For all people in all times, it truly is the best news ever. And yet, the first people to hear that news left trembling, bewildered, and afraid, and they were silent. And so there is a relationship between the seeing and the believing. We can understand that. But the good news is that the tomb was not just empty. Jesus was alive. And so He starts showing up. And He starts appearing to people. And we can read about it in Mark's Gospel, verses 9-14. through We read these words that when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, He appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom He had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with Him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. They returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe it either. So Jesus realized, I've got to show up to all of them at the same time or they're never going to get this. So on verse 14, he appeared to the eleven as they were eating, and he rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen Him after He was risen. 
I find it interesting that there are multiple first-hand accounts by known entities. These were not strangers that were coming back. Mary Magdalene had been following Jesus. The two on the road to Emmaus that rushed back to tell them. They were known. They were people that they knew. These were not anonymous people telling them that Jesus was alive. These were people that they had a relationship with, and they stubbornly refused to believe. And so Jesus rebukes them and tells them, it's the best news ever, and you don't even believe it. It's funny, we're kind of hard on doubting Thomas, and he's been known by that name ever since. But this was equal opportunity unbelief by all of the disciples that were hearing these firsthand accounts from people they knew and were choosing not to believe. And so it's understandable that Jesus rebukes them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe. After all, it's not like he didn't tell them exactly what was going to happen, not once. Not twice, but three times in each of the Gospels, we hear Jesus telling His disciples what's going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be killed. And I'm going to rise again. And two other times, He refers to after I have risen. And yet they still did not believe. And so it makes you wonder, was this really just too good to be true? Was it truly unbelievable? While you ponder that thought, I want you to back up one page to the end of chapter 15. Because there was one person that took in the final hours of Jesus' life and believed immediately. We read in verse 37 through 39 of Mark 15, right at the end, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed His last the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, signifying that there was no longer a separation from the holy of holies where God dwelled and those who would be seeking Him. And as an illustration of that great truth in verse 39, we read, When the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Don't miss the significance of this declaration. This is, this is not a Hebrew. This is not one of Jesus' followers. This is not an Israelite. This is a foreign pagan who wasn't even born in this area of the world, who had likely been sent there on orders and finds himself as the executioner of what he would have thought going into the day was a common criminal. But as he saw, as he experienced the final hours of Jesus' life, he was led to the conclusion that surely this man was the Son of God. A pagan who believed in a whole pantheon of gods. A, A Roman officer who had one primary god. That was Caesar. They believed that Caesar was a god. And that he owed allegiance to him. For him to come to this point, to this declaration, to say surely this man was the Son, not a Son, of the living God, not of one of the gods, represents a monumental declaration that probably put his life at great risk to be professing that this common criminal was the Son of God. And the significance in Mark's Gospel cannot be overstated as well. Way back at the beginning, verse 1, chapter 1 of Mark's Gospel, he opens the story, he opens this testament to who Jesus was with the words, the beginning 
of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He opens his gospel with a declaration that Jesus is the Son of God. He then presents 15 chapters of evidence that Jesus was the Son of God. And here, as sort of the other bookend to the story, is a Roman centurion making a declaration that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. And so what led the centurion to that conclusion? What had he seen and heard in those final hours of Jesus' life? Well, if you read the Gospels, you see that, that he no doubt heard Jesus praying for the forgiveness of those who were not just executing him, but mocking him and taunting him and telling him, you saved others, why don't you save yourself? If you really are the Son of God, then you know, come down from the cross and then we'll believe. He heard Jesus pray a prayer, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. He heard Jesus' words and saw his posture with the other criminal, the repentant one, the one that asked him to remember him, and he responded by saying, this day you will be with me in paradise. He saw a relational God, not a distant, disconnected deity that would not mingle with the common people. He saw him having a relational conversation with another criminal. He saw the supernatural darkness cover the earth at noon. From noon until three o'clock, a darkness covered the earth, which could only have been interpreted as divine judgment on what was taking place. Imagine we walk out of here in 30 or 40 minutes and the clouds come in and the sky darkens. Would it get your attention? Absolutely. And so he saw that and he recognized that this was bigger than any one man. That there was a divine judgment over what was taking place. And then I'm sure he heard that loud cry as Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Crying out to the God who had forsaken him and acknowledging him as still my God, my God. He saw Jesus' devotion to the very end, even when forsaken. And then he saw him breathe his last. He saw love, agape love in action as Jesus gave his life for the sins of all the world, that all people at all times and all places could come into a relationship with the God of the universe. And his response was to say, surely this man was the Son of God. The centurion believed. He, he made a declaration of his faith that Jesus was who Jesus said he was. And so you might be wondering, why does he make it such a big deal out of this? Because I am convinced that everything changes when we believe. That's our bottom line today. Everything changes when we believe. Not when it happens, but when we believe that it has happened. His disciples, those closest to Him, were terrified. They were silent. They refused to believe. 
It wasn't until they believed that things broke open. It wasn't until they put their faith in. It wasn't until they relied upon and clung to and trusted in the good news that Jesus was the risen Savior that everything started to change. And that's why we're here today, 2,000 years later, celebrating the resurrection, celebrating the best news ever because people believed and they told about what they had seen and heard they believed. And they planted churches, and they discipled people, and they planted more churches, and they discipled more people, and they moved the gospel forward, the good news forward, because everything changes when you believe. Everything changes when we believe. Now this centurion, he didn't, he didn't understand everything. He hadn't spent the last three years with Jesus, following Him around, watching Him do miracles, hearing Him teach about the kingdom of God. He didn't understand all the ramifications of the decision that He had made or the recognition that He had made. He simply trusted and put His faith in Jesus. He didn't know what was next for Him. He didn't even know what was next for Jesus. He decided, I've seen enough. I know that this man truly is the Son of God. He saw how he died, he heard his cry, and he believed. And here's the good news. 2,000 years later, thousands of miles away, you can believe too. If you walked in here with doubts, you can believe that Jesus, surely this man is the Son of God. You can believe that he died for you. You can believe that his death ushers you into a relationship with him. Even if you walked in here with doubts and with confusion and with disbelief, you can walk out of here a believer in Jesus Christ and everything can start to change. But as I look across the room, I know many of the faces here. And most of you probably are believers. And so you say, what if I walked in here a believer? Well, Jesus has a word for us as well. And we read it in verses 15 and 16 of Mark chapter 16. These are red letters where He, Jesus, says to them, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And so if you walked in here a believer, you can walk out of here a missionary. You can walk out of here a preacher. You can walk out of here a disciple-maker. You can walk out of here a witness. One who tells people what they have seen and heard and believed. And the story can move forward and the light can push back the darkness through your life as you share what you have seen and what you have believed. And as we circle back to what the centurion saw that led him to the conclusion that surely this man is the Son of God, We can be Christ to the people of this world. We can be sent ones to the people of this world that they would see our words and our actions and the way that we relate to each other and to the people around us and come to the conclusion that this man they're following must have been the Son of God. We can live in such a way that people see Christ's light shining through us into a darkened world. A world darkened by sin. Darkened by the effects of sin. And they can see the love and the joy and the peace 
that flows out of our relationship with God, and they can come to the conclusion, as the centurion did, this Jesus, there's something about him. He must be the Son of God, as they say. And we can live in such a way that we give our lives for the gospel so that people who are far from God can come into the family of God. However you walked in here, wherever you were in your relationship with God this morning, when you signed on, when you tuned in, when you walked in, you can take the next step. That's the good news of the gospel, that there's always a next step for us to take in our relationship with Him. And at this moment, we have the opportunity to celebrate the resurrection through the partaking of communion. So I want to invite the worship team to make their way back up here as we prepare. And as we consider what it means to believe, to rely upon, to cling to, to trust in who Jesus is and what He has said, I want to encourage you, if you haven't already picked up a communion cup, you can find these at the back of the sanctuary. And I want to remind you, or if this is your first time here, we want you to know we serve what's called an open communion at Linwood Wesleyan Church. That means you don't have to be a member of the church in order to participate. Our only requirement is Jesus' only requirement. That if you do this, and as often as you do this, you would do it in remembrance of Him. If you can do this in remembrance of Him today, then you're welcome to participate. And if you have children or young people with you, they're welcome as well, as long as they understand the significance of what is being done. This was meant to be an act of remembrance, and yet the first time that it was done was just four days before Easter morning. And so in a moment, I will lead us in a prayer, and we will give you some time to just reflect, to just consider to examine your own heart and ask God if there is anything that has come between you and Him, that you could confess it and agree to it. Or maybe if you have heard the gospel and you're responding to the gospel today, you can pray a simple prayer of confession that you need a Savior, asking Jesus to become the Lord of your life and pledging to follow Him all the days of your life. And then after a few moments... I'll lead us and we'll all partake of the elements together. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for your death on the cross. And we thank you for the resurrection, for conquering sin and death on our behalf. We thank you for those who have gone before us, Lord, and we thank you for those who will come after us, who will believe because of what they see in our lives. Have your way in these moments, Lord. Help us to consider and to reflect and to examine ourselves. Show us if there's anything that needs to be confessed, anything that needs to be turned over to you. Have your way in these moments, God.
And on that Thursday, before the cross, Matthew recounts what took place in the upper room. Telling us, while they were eating, Jesus took bread and He gave thanks for it. And He broke it. And He gave it to His disciples saying, Take and eat. This is My body. And then He took the cup and He gave thanks and He offered it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is My body. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. Lord Jesus, we come before You as a grateful people. Grateful for Your goodness and Your grace. Grateful for the opportunity to gather in Your name and to celebrate who You are and who You say that we are when we come to faith in You. Thank You, Lord, for Easter, for the resurrection, for the good news that the veil has been torn in two, that all people everywhere can come to faith in You and find in You a living hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.